So this morning I'd like to uh, continue with the exploration of the theme of practicing with uh, thoughts and emotions that we started uh, last time. And it really uh, is an area where we can, I think, quite directly see uh, many of the benefits of our practice, sometimes quite quickly. That it's our, um, our thoughts and emotions can typically, or quite often, take us away uh, in ways that almost like banish us from ourselves. We get lost in these complicated uh, mixes of emotions and thoughts. Uh, there's a passage from the 8th century, which sounds like that problem was then was around then also. <laughs> in this world of unsubdued and crazed elephants, in this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my mind. <laughs> the comment was, that's where the phrase elephant in the room came from. <laughs> yes, there's the, there, there's the unleashed elephant that's just going around crazily, and there's the sitting elephant that's uh, in the room. So, so it, it, offers, it offers an area where the, the benefits of mindfulness and of uh, working with our, our minds and emotions with uh, wisdom and compassion can really clearly be of benefit. Last time I talked especially about developing mindfulness in relationship to thoughts and emotions. And today I want to review that briefly, review what we covered last time but particularly uh, look to, as it were, a complementary way of working with thoughts and emotions if mindfulness is a more receptive way. It's a way of being present with what's there, exploring, going more deeply and so forth. We also, in a way, need the more active ways of uh, intervening or responding uh, skillfully to thoughts and emotions as they come up. Sometimes, as it were, mindfulness is not enough or mindfulness needs to be complemented by other tools. And so that's, uh, I want to, after a review of talking about uh, working with mindfulness, which is going to remain a really primary tool, I want to talk about some ways of being skillful with, uh, with uh, thoughts and emotions. Uh, first, though, I want to do something that I did last time, which is just to have a very brief uh, reflection, invite a brief reflection of some states of mind, states of heart, which are challenging for you. So I'd like to invite you again just to reflect for yourself right now, just for a minute or so, one or two or three particularly challenging kind of thought patterns, emotions, places your, mind, your minds go that are challenging or difficult or where we get stuck. And they can be positive. Don't have to all be uh, unpleasant. They can be pleasant ones that we get stuck in. like again to invite uh, uh, some of us just to mention what came to you, just in a word or two, not, a, not a, an account, but just a word or two to name something, just like naming fear or last time. I, I took the list from last time. Last time we had fear, excessive planning were the first two mentioned. <laughs> some others that, that occurred to you may be the same as last time. Comparing mind. Anger and shame. Regrets. Regrets, yeah. Worry more than 
What? Worry? And yours was? Conflict. Okay, there's a conflict between two people talking. <laughs> so I'll ask, invite you first. There was, yes. Wary wardism. It's a, yeah, it was a, it's a Buddhist technical term <laughs> identified by the Buddha on one of those lists. So in yours, please, was? Conflict. Conflict, yeah. Greed, which can be more connected with the positive. It's like being with the pleasant and wanting more somehow. So others, just a few more, please. Vagueness. Vagueness, sort of confusion maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Compulsive mind. Any, any people who came up with ones that are more on the pleasant end of the spectrum? <laughs> How about Pollyanna mind? <laughs> Pollyanna mind. <laughs> Complacency. Complacency, yeah. Yeah, so they all have a quality of being challenging, sometimes a place where we get stuck. And ones that were, some of the other ones that were mentioned last time were hurt feelings, righteous indignation, stress, ecstasy was mentioned, powerlessness, and so forth. And so what we're looking for are ways in general to work with thoughts and emotions, but with a particular emphasis on working with challenging thoughts and emotions. Because that's really where we, where we um, especially can call upon those resources. And yet the, the tools that we're looking at, which are primarily... Last time, the tool of mindfulness, and uh, today we'll add tools of um, the wisdom factor and working with, uh, working with the heart and, way, and, and working a little bit more with inquiry uh, that, w- that really complement mindfulness and start to give us uh, a repertoire of tools. So maybe after today, you could, you could have a list of just a few approaches so that if a difficult... Uh, pattern of thought, of consciousness, or difficult emotion comes up, you can whip out your piece of paper from the talk today and say, okay, let me go down the list, just like a mechanic would do with a, um, a car having difficult states of mind or heart. You know, that, that we, would, we could actually, it actually can help us to be more conscious. And because the whole intention here comes from the fact that in our practice, actually doing the practice is much less hard than remembering to do the practice. In other words, once we actually say, what should I do, we've, we're almost, we've done 80% of the work there. Sometimes that last 20% is pretty hard. But still, just the fact that we've broken the unconsciousness or the compulsivity, at least enough to ask, what should I do, is extremely significant. And I, I hope that... Uh, hope that we get to know that better because sometimes when things are not quite as we want but we're asking those questions and we're doing the best we can, that's really, all I think, all we can ask of ourselves. It's, and it's really the, the, the main issue that we want to uh, work with is, the, is just that quality of being lost or being in reactive patterns. And simply uh, noticing or asking, what should I do, is already to go beyond that uh, quality of being lost. And it's very significant. Even if sometimes in the moment it feels, I'm asking what I should do, I'm still suffering. <laughs> it happens like that. But actually, the asking what we should do really does make a difference. So that, that's the intention for today, to really give some tools so that you can actually, if you want to put them by your computer, or and I'll try to make it simple so we can have a list. So uh, first, a review of last time and the tool of mindfulness, which is, which is really a primary, if not the primary, tool of this practice. And in the core text, or the core discourse that the Buddha gave on the foundations of mindfulness, he says that mindfulness is basically the main tool for coming to liberation. It's, and in a way, when we deepen our mindfulness, many of the other qualities open up as well. When we really stay mindful, for example, of something that's um, challenging or difficult, a, com- a kind of compassion naturally arises. When we stay mindful 
and really looking carefully at experience over and over again, a wisdom naturally develops. And so there are a lot of qualities which arise with mindfulness uh, when we keep on practicing it. Mindfulness is that quality of being able to be present with our experience in a direct way. Just to, just to review some of what we covered last time, mindfulness is the ability to be present, to know one's experience directly. And in particular, that directness means to have it uh, not mediated by thoughts, interpretations, and the storyline. And so one of the first important learnings is to know the difference between the direct experience of sensations in my knee, let's say, to know the difference between that and the different thoughts and stories that I tell myself of how uh, I'm going to lose my knee if I stay in this position any longer, or the fact that this isn't what I signed up to do. I signed up for total bliss when I came to meditation, and I'm <laughs> sitting here with my knee hurting and getting irritable. And that, that is not direct experience. <laughs> now, we can have a direct experience of the thoughts, of course, uh, but it's actually harder. But we come to know that distinction between direct experience of sensations or emotions uh, and the various interpretations we make. And that is a key distinction that, that uh, serves us tremendously when we work with uh, thoughts and emotions. Again, it's not to say that interpretations or narratives or stories are unimportant. In a way, we, we totally need them. But to know when we're at the level of interpretation or story as opposed to the level of direct experience is really crucial. And it really helps us. So we can say, uh, and, and, and it's actually suggested that a lot of the deeper learning comes from staying more at the level of direct experience. Because often uh, the stories and the interpretations cover over things. And they, they often are, as it were, um, ways of not looking or dealing with certain things, or ways of covering over unconscious material and so forth. And so being with the direct experience tends to open us up more directly. And so that, that quality of mindfulness is also uh, related to the qualities of mindfulness as being uh, non-reactive and non-judgmental. It's that being present in a balanced way with experience to really just be with the anger or the um, sense of conflict and just to stay with it or stay to really be there with the, with the phenomena related to worry, wartism, and, and, to, um, and to be able just to notice, okay, this is what's happening in my body, this is what's happening in my mind right now. And to stay there is, is really what we do with the tool of mindfulness. Last time, I gave a technique, which some of you, I, I'm, I'm sure, worked with during the last week, which is a very uh, helpful technique that goes by the acronym of RAIN, R-A-I-N. And I'll just review that briefly, because a few people asked me to do that, and because it's a very, it's a very helpful technique. And then I'll, then I'll move on to the, to the more uh, active ways of working with, with uh, states of mind and heart. Again, because the mindfulness is primarily a more receptive way of working with states of mind and heart. And again, it can be complemented with the more active ways. So RAIN stands for, uh, R stands for recognition, A for acceptance, I for inquiry or investigation, and N for non-identification. I believe it was developed by Michelle McDonald Smith, uh, teaching uh, at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie. I'm not, I'm not positive of that. And, does anyone know better than me on that? I believe that I'll, maybe I should I'll look that up because I think it's nice to honor her. I've honored her, but it'd be nice to honor her without any uncertainty. <laughs> so, uh, so the the R for recognition stands for that quality of naming, which we explored in the guided meditation of really noticing that something is actually there using uh, the very quiet labels at times as a technique to do that. And again, it's the way that simply noticing that uh, a particular state of mind or heart is there can in a way break the trance, can break through the automatic quality of consciousness and bring it to our attention. It's still maybe very hard to work with, 
but the naming is a beginning and it's very significant. And again, I, uh, last time I, I gave some examples of, of ways that we know that this is important often in a relationship, just for someone to name something brings, like if we're having some interpersonal difficulties and someone just names, um, I think you're really angry. And just to name that there's anger there when people are just at each other. Um, and it kind of, again, it can take it away somewhat from the old storyline and just say, yeah, I'm angry. Or someone just names, um, um, I think you may be really fearful. Or, or someone to say for, of oneself, you know, I'm really feeling anxious about this meeting coming up. And again, it doesn't resolve things, but it, it brings it in, it really brings it into the frame work of practice, of saying, this is what's happening, how can we work with it? It takes it away from the unconscious, compulsive, automatic, impulsive, trance-like state that we uh, live in a certain amount of our lives, you know, and that um, unfortunately a lot of human beings do, where things are happening automatically uh, to a large extent. And so the recognition, really, really crucial. The acceptance in RAIN has to do with, it's in, in a way, can be quite linked to recognition. It's acknowledging that the uh, state of mind or heart is really there. It's a kind of uh, letting be or letting go of resistance to it. And it's not acceptance in the sense thinking that this is a good thing. I'm feeling really, really angry towards what my boss told me. I accept that what my boss told me is okay. No, it's not that. It's not, it's not accepting that it was okay or morally acceptable or appropriate. And so the acceptance is more accepting that this is the way, this is really the way that I think I'm thinking or feeling. This is really happening and I have to deal with it. And I gave the example last time of, uh, of the paradoxical way in which often we need to really accept that something is present in order to respond to change it. That that's, that's an interesting paradox, that if we don't accept something, we're, gonna, we're fighting, we're resisting the fact that it's there. And I said, my sense is that Martin Luther King, for example, really accepted that racism was present. <laughs> and yet he responded to it in a very direct way. And so that acceptance is more, this is really here, and it, it means, yes, I can deal with it, respond to it wisely, but it's really here and I'm not resisting it or making believe that it shouldn't be here, or that, you know, uh, the fact that it's here means that I'm bad or something like that. It's really saying, this is here. It's kind of like saying, this is here, deal with it, Donald. <laughs> something like that, <laughs> if I could use that language. And the, um, the inquiry is actually where a lot, a lot actually, uh, let's see, getting hot. I'm accepting that it's hot. <laughs> and responding. Yes, I was actually... Is it, is it appropriate to take off my sweater in the middle of a Dharma talk? Absolutely. <laughs> Support from the community. <laughs> so, uh, so there you go. I was acknowledging, am I hot? Yes, I'm really hot. <laughs> uh, and then I could respond. And, and if I just stayed with mindfulness... You see, this is actually relating to the whole talk. If I just stayed with mindfulness, I'd just say, hot, getting hotter, <laughs> really hot. <laughs> and I could have done that the whole, you know, and then it's the, the moment that, you know, I mean, would that all of our work with thoughts and emotions be so simple as the taking off of a sweater when I'm hot? But, but you can see the way that mindfulness by itself is not always enough. It takes also the skillful response. So that, that was not staged. I didn't plan to do that. <laughs> but in any case, so the... Use it next time. What? Use it next time. Use it next time. It's a very effective tool. <laughs> very good. So the, um, the eye for uh, inquiry is where a lot of the very interesting uh, exploration happens. That would be to actually be present once we've come through the recognition and acceptance to actually explore what is this really like? What's really happening? Uh, let me be with my sadness. Okay, let me just feel what it's like. What's the texture of the sadness? And again, we can use some language here. We can use 
again, it's best if it's somewhat quiet, but we can actually give ourselves uh, questions. Okay, really feel this, Donald. Really feel the heat. You know, or really feel the sadness. What's it like in the body? What does comparing mind feel like in my body? How do the thoughts work? Really exploring that. And sometimes we find that that insights arise or that we stay, as in the examples I gave last time where I I talked about um, working with anger in a retreat where there was a lot of anger present. Sometimes I would notice the anger would shift to another state. It would shift to sadness. A lot of times anger covers over hurt and I would actually... Uh, come to the quality of hurt or sadness. And then I would actually, sometimes when I stayed with it more, it would go down to a a sense of love, so it would shift. So the inquiry can be incredibly revealing and powerful and and also, in a way, healing. And it's really uh, necessary, typically, to do that, to have the end part of the RAIN formula, the non-identification, which means, in a way, to not take it so personally, just to really, to be able somehow to invoke that, sometimes we talk about the witness quality. It's a a witness, but it's not a distanced witness. It's a witness that can really be right there and feel it, but can be with that sadness and just really explore it and notice any tendencies to say, I'm really sad, you know. I'm just going to be sad the rest of my life. It's because of dot, dot, dot. (laughs) You know, just the play, it's really watching out for the tendency of the mind to identify. And by identification we mean basically think that this refers to some essential quality of myself. And so it's more to take the stance of, let me just explore this, almost like a scientist, but not a distant scientist, but a, as it were, scientist that's very intimately connected with the phenomenon. Just to stay with it. Let me look at this process. Let me really study it and watch the tendencies of my, that I have to not do that. So that's the process of RAIN, and it's a very helpful technique. And uh, how many people worked with that some in the last week? Yeah, yeah. Now, as we saw with the um, example of the sweater, mindfulness is sometimes not enough <laughs> that, and sometimes needs a, a complementary strategy. And I wanted to talk, and I'll see, if, I'll see in terms of the time, because I want to give a lot of time for interaction. I was going to talk about three main ways to complement mindfulness. And in a way I've talked some about the first. The first that I, and this, this is bringing in more active qualities into our practice of working with thoughts and emotions. And the three more active ways of working, and this, this, these would constitute the toolbox that I was talking about earlier. So we'd have mindfulness, and then we'd have three further ways of uh, working with thoughts or emotions. And the, the first of those three is finding ways to look more deeply, to inquire. So in a sense, it's already connected with the inquiry in the RAIN formula. But it's looking more deeply, inquiring, and that sometimes bring, needs a more active way of doing it, such as using language in the way I was doing. And I'll talk about each of these. The second is bringing in wisdom more fully, bringing in the qualities of wisdom. And again, sometimes that is connected with reflection, with asking questions, with saying, okay, well, look at this, look at impermanence, or look at any ways that you're identifying with the experience. It brings in the wisdom dimension more. So first, the deepening of mindfulness using inquiry. Second, the the bringing in of the wisdom factor. And the third, the bringing in of what we might call antidotes. And this is particularly bringing in what we might call the heart qualities, bringing in loving-kindness or gratitude or, or um, compassion and really holding that as a way to work with our experience. So those are the three I want to cover for the rest of the talk. And so I'll try to, what I'll try to do is cover those somewhat briefly, particularly the first, and then um, if I don't cover some, we can look at it in two weeks. So the first about the, the deepening of mindfulness and the moving to inquiry was entailed by what I talked about in terms of the inquiry dimension of the RAIN formula. This would be to be, if if there's a pervasive mood, and it typically would be an emotion, but it also could be pervasive thought patterns, to deepen my inquiry. And I can do that in a few different ways. 
One is by just staying with the uh, experience uh, and putting out effort to be continuously with what's happening. So if I'm experiencing a lot of sadness, I can sometimes, it's very skillful for me just to be present with it, stay with it. You know, as it was with the anger example I gave, it was very helpful for me just to continually notice the anger, hang out with it, and see where it went, see how it changed. And as I mentioned, in that case, when I stayed with it over, and this was over a 10-day retreat where I had anger most of the time for 10 days, 15 hours a day. It was a little bit of a drag at first, but after a while... <laughs> after a while, it was pretty interesting because I was, for, I was starting to see things. And again, I, I was working with Jack Kornfield, as I mentioned last time. I found him very, very skillful. And he, I, it, you know, once I was learning things, once I was saying, oh, there's not just one anger, but oh my gosh, there are five or six kinds of anger. There, it's not just one kind. And oh, sometimes when I stay with my anger, I feel sadness or I feel hurt. Oh, and when I stay with that further, it opens up to love. Oh my gosh, beneath anger is love. If I just stay with it deeply enough, I'll open up to, oh my gosh. So, so after a while, I said, I don't want this anger to go away. <laughs> it was actually really, really interesting. And that, that's really the beauty of what we do here. We set up this protected environment where we can really look carefully. And in a way, we, it's a safe environment to look deeply. And, and we want to somehow create more of those environments outside of outside of these kind of settings, to do it at home or for ourselves. And so it was um, that looking more deeply can be very, very powerful. So sometimes we look more deeply simply by staying with something for a while, having the patience to just stay with it. And then retreats are beautiful for that because they give support. You know, and if, you know, sometimes daily life, if I was angry, I might, I might be angry and sit on the cushion and maybe after 20 minutes say, eh, this isn't going anywhere, you know. Let's read Time magazine. Get away from anger. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Isn't that what happens? Oh, I'll get away from anger by watching the evening news <laughs> and just having some peaceful, mellow situation. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, but a lot of it's going into just some numbness, isn't it, actually? If we actually watch the evening news with mindfulness and awareness, the world would be different. I think, we, I think it tends to numb us out, actually, and we get into a trance. That's another subject. <laughs> and so um, just to stay with it, and so t- it, this can maybe give the energy to be patient when you're in a sitting, and it's not what you want, it's something challenging, but keep with the mindfulness. So that's, that's one basic way to deepen. And there are actually a lot of ways to deepen that I'm going to just mention two here. With thoughts particularly, I want to invoke the practice that we've done a few times, which is the practice of when there are repetitive thoughts, like when we're in a sitting and we're thinking about that interaction over and over again that we had with a boss or a partner or family member, whatever, and it's just, it's just taking up our consciousness if the mind has a sufficient degree of stillness, it can be very helpful when we notice the repetitive thoughts to shift the consciousness to the body. In particular, that technique that I call the dropping down practice where we bring the attention to the heart and just listen there. The heart and the upper body and just listen there. I think this is taught widely in the Vipassana community and it's a way, and it requires some degree of stillness. If our mind is all over the place, it's really not skillful to use this technique. It requires some stillness because we basically have to sit there and listen without the mind trying to figure out or expect what we should hear. It's really to have a quality of openness and that is hard to have when our minds are really active. But we've had, when we have some stillness, we can actually notice. We can say, oh, you know, we can notice that during the sitting I've been five times, ten times thinking about the interaction with my boss. Okay? I shift my attention here. And I noticed, surprise, I, I didn't feel respected or something like that, or I could feel anger, or I could feel something that actually starts illuminating the situation a little bit more. And it's, it really is the tool of using the body, especially if we have a lot of thinking, to really uh, look more into what the experience is. 
And that can be a very powerful technique and can be used right in the middle of daily life. I use it a lot just when something seems repetitive or I feel stuck and there are a lot of thinking. If I have enough quiet, I can shift the attention and sometimes no. And I gave the example, especially when I was first starting to do more teaching, sometimes I gave talks and I didn't feel good about the talks. And I would, I would notice my mind being judgmental towards myself. And um, it was typically when I was rushed and I didn't have enough time to prepare at that, at that time. And what I found myself able to do sometimes, I'd notice myself just getting in a bit of a funk after a talk that I didn't think went well. And I would, I would then um, luckily notice, you know, the R, funk. <laughs> <laughs> I would notice it, and then I'd be able to, if I noticed it happening, I could then shift to my area of my body and my heart, and I would note, and I would just sit with it for a while, and sometimes I would do that, and I would just feel, instead of the repetitive judgments, I would notice sadness. I'd be connected with almost like a thought, I wish I had had more time to prepare, I don't like this, but it was more like with sadness, and I would notice, if I just stayed with the sadness sometimes, at least in the examples I was giving, which does presuppose you know, a lot of years of practice, I would just sit with the sadness and I'd be with it for five or ten minutes and the repetitive thoughts would go away. It was as if I had to touch something that was driving the thoughts. And as long as I didn't touch that, the thoughts were just going to continue. But when I touched it with a kind of healing presence, the thoughts evaporated. Again, that presupposes a lot of years of practice and so I don't want you to expect, okay, I'll just take those difficult situations and I'll just move to my heart and it should leave just like Donald said in five minutes. (laughs) So, I mean, that came again after a lot of years of practice but it gives an example and sometimes, again, it's relative to the strength of what's beneath. But it's a very, can be a very powerful tool just to shift our attention because the basic... uh, One of the basic lessons that we learn in mindfulness practice is that when we're present to pain in an open and compassionate way, there can be healing. It's really one of the uh, basic understandings of this practice. And I think many of us have seen that it actually works quite amazingly. And of course, it's the the basis for a lot of healing uh, on many, many levels, whether physical or emotional or, or otherwise. And so that's really behind that technique, that understanding is behind that technique of moving to the body. So the second uh, tool I want to mention is the tool of bringing wisdom in. And I think I'm going to be brief on this and say a little bit more uh, next time because, because of the time. So wis- bringing in wisdom would be to bring in reflection that lets us see our experience in the light of particular um, principles. It might be the principle of impermanence. So I might be able to say to myself when I'm um, stuck in some anger, let's say, Donald, remember impermanence, (laughs) meaning that this will change and that this is temporary and it's moving and it's not nothing stuck. And sometimes that can be quite helpful in the, in the immediacy of a, of a thought or emotion. It can be painful sometimes when we reflect on impermanence when we're having really pleasant experiences. <laughs> but it brings wisdom you know, because it, it helps us not to grasp. You know, the most beautiful dinner we have, the most beautiful interpersonal experience of connection it's all impermanent, isn't it? And that's so it, but I'm especially bringing this up for the unpleasant experiences <laughs> because that's where it can be really helpful. There's a beautiful uh, model which is found uh, in the Buddhist tradition which develops a concept that's there in the text on the foundations of mindfulness which is called the, uh, the idea of clear comprehension. And it's said in this text that in addition to mindfulness, there are certain other qualities. One is invited to practice with diligence, ardor, and clear comprehension. So you can add that to your tools. Diligence, ardor, and clear comprehension. And clear comprehension is a wisdom factor. And in the commentaries, it's explicated in four ways. 
And it really has to do with a sense of really knowing what's happening in the moment and being able to act skillfully. And so this is, can be very helpful in the context of our working with thoughts and emotions. The first aspect of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of purpose. And this has to do with remembering what our life is about, remembering our values, our intentions, our larger sense of purpose. It could, it could be in the middle of a difficult emotion, like anger, to remember, what am I about? Am I about learning and freedom and liberation? And it's really invoking that intention in a difficult moment. That would be called clear comprehension of purpose. It's remembering why we do things. And so the working with setting intentions on a daily basis is really, really crucial. You know, it's, and it can be incredibly helpful in an interpersonal relationship or in a group just to remember what are we about. You know, I, I remember the story that I was told by uh, Martine Batchelor, who was just here last week, who was teaching. And she tells the story of living in a community in England, which was a, a meditation-based community in southwest England. And they, it was kind of like a commune of sorts. They luckily were given the use of an estate to have their community. It's kind of luxurious. They were given like equivalent of about a thousand acres plus a big house. But they still had to live there and practice. And so, and they, but they would... Uh, they would make available their space for guests to come at times. You know, they had a, kind of an open attitude. People could come for a few days and visit. They had policy on that. And at one point they were discussing, they were really feeling like there were just too many guests coming. And they were really, it was getting irrit- irritating and people were complaining about it. And they just had this discussion. It was all on the level, Martin said, of complaining. You know, so in, in a sense, they were just getting caught in their complaining, their negativity in a way. And then someone said, what about compassion? And it was as if they had not even remembered what their original purpose was or one of their original purposes. And when someone said compassion, the discussion totally shifted because they were having at that moment a kind of clear comprehension of purpose. And it didn't mean that they didn't set some boundaries or say, well, Maybe instead of staying for a week, let's just say they can stay for the maximum of three days or have a limit on number of guests or whatever. But the, but, the, but the remembering of purpose just broke a kind of stuckness that they were in. And that's really what that clear comprehension of purpose can do. The second uh, quality of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of suitability. And this has to do with really knowing what's... Uh, what's practical given who I am and the situation. So it would be to say, you know, um, my back's been really hurting. Maybe it's not the right day to sit cross-legged on a cushion. That would be clear comprehension of suitability. And again, it, doesn't, it has to do with the wisdom dimension. It would be knowing, um, is this, you know, is, should I try to sit for two hours a day and do practice even though my life is like this? Maybe yes, maybe no. It's clear comprehension of suitability, which in a way knows what the conditions are. And so in a given uh, moment of experience, it might be to really know what one's own resources are. Um, I'm feeling really, really angry. Can I deal with this myself? Can I work with this myself? Do I have the resources? And it's asking the question. And maybe we might say yes. Maybe we might say I really need to talk with a friend. So that would be to raise the question about clear uh, comprehension of suitability. The, uh, the third aspect of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of the domain of meditation. These are the classical terms. And that has to do, in our context, with learning ways to bring meditation techniques into our daily lives. To know, okay, well, I'll work with... Um, when this comes up, I'll, I'll be able to work with mindfulness. Or when this comes up, I'll work with wisdom. Or I'll bring awareness to my body. It's really knowing a variety of different tools of mindfulness and knowing some ways to work with them. It's really being able, in a given situation, to remember to bring this into the framework of mindfulness and wisdom. So it's related, in a way, to the first. But this is more practical. How do I bring 
my practical tools of mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness into the present moment. And then the last aspect of clear comprehension, I think you'll like this one, is called clear comprehension of reality. Always a good thing. And in short supply these days, especially among many of our political leaders. I'm sorry, that was a... (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) Clear comprehension of reality. Where did that come? I hope I didn't offend anyone, but I didn't name any people. It was nonpartisan. So, um, but it's it's this is where the the qualities of clear comprehension of reality would have to really noticing when we stay with emotions or difficult thoughts, their impermanence, how things begin, how things end. Noticing, okay, what triggers that difficult emotion. And starting to see, not just even be with the emotion, but start to see the patterns of cause and effect. And again, it's what we can sometimes, if we study one of our patterns really carefully, we can start to notice this. What triggers my uh, worry-wartism? What triggers my comparing mind? We can really start to notice, okay, here's the cause, here's where I go, here's what leads it to pass away. And that would be part of what's called clear comprehension of reality, who would bring in the ability to see where we start taking things uh, personally, where there's identification. That would, be, that would come under that domain. To be able to see how when something happens, my self-image or my, uh, my thoughts about myself start arising, to really notice that carefully. And also to notice what leads to suffering. Notice how certain ways that my mind works, the way that I contract or the way that I grasp onto the pleasant leads to, leads to suffering. So I think, I I may expand that next time because I wanted, uh, that was a little bit brief. But I wanted to cover that because it can, again, we're kind of giving a set of tools so that if we left here, we'd have mindfulness, subdivisions, you know, (laughs) the aspects of mindfulness, uh, recognition, acceptance, uh, inquiry, non-identification. Okay, then we have, okay, also my toolbox, I have deepening practices, a few techniques to deepen. Then I have the bringing of the wisdom factors. And I've got, okay, I've got the four aspects of clear comprehension. And if it's too much, just stay with mindfulness. <laughs> or just, just stay generally with mindfulness, deepening, uh, wisdom. And then the last I want to mention is a really important one. I think I'm going to be really brief here and go into it more next time. And this is what I would call the use of antidotes and invoking uh, beautiful states, particularly states of the heart. And so this is sometimes mindfulness may not be so appropriate in terms of a given state of mind. Uh, it's mostly where we're not balanced. If we have a lot of balance in our mind, mindfulness is, is almost always helpful. But there are moments when we're, when we're out of balance and where it actually is not so skillful to attempt mindfulness. And sometimes when our mind is caught in something or stuck in something, it can be much more skillful to do what we might call apply an antidote. It really is to shift the attention in another direction. And so we just, as it were, move out of the stuck place. And this is, um, in the long run, we need both mindfulness uh, and the um, moving out of the stuck place. But in... Uh, in moving out of the stuck place, we, in, in a sense, can prevent further damage from being done, particularly where it's a really a very wounded area. If it's a very wounded area, sometimes the mindfulness, if we're not balanced, can, we can actually uh, get further stuck in that. And this, this is, it really points to the way that working with the states of uh, mind and heart becomes a kind of an art form. There's no formula. We kind of get better at saying, okay, what's good to do now? As we get more experience, we get a more of an intuitive sense. Is it a good time, you know, to really, you know, um, to really be mindful of what's happening? Uh, well, I feel pretty balanced, and I'm kind of interested. So yes, let's go ahead. I'm, let's say I'm feeling a lot of anger or even fear, and I can go into it. Or I might ask myself, it's three in the morning. I woke up. I'm really anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not feeling very balanced. Should I be mindful? Try to be mindful? Often the answer would be no. It's not so skillful. If we can be, great. But it might be helpful in that situation just to shift the energy, to shift it toward, and this is where 
some of the tools of loving kindness or compassion or gratitude or more basically going to uh, a very beautiful or positive state can be very, very skillful. And so way, in a way what we're doing is we're building our resources and getting those stronger and then at the right time and place we can come back to the mindfulness. In the long run, we need to both have mindfulness into the nature of our difficult places, but we also need to be able to develop these powerful tools or resources that help us get stronger. And so this might be in the middle of the night, we can go to, let me just uh, go to loving kindness towards myself, which is in a way it's the equivalent almost of a mother holding a scared child and just saying, okay, Donald, it'll work out, it's impermanent, you know, it's, and if that doesn't work, (laughs) you can say, you're basically a good person and you're trying. I mean, we have to be skillful to know what works for ourselves. Some people might say, you're a really good person, and someone, the response might be, that's what you always say, I don't believe it. (laughs) You know, so we, but, but to use in some way the tools of really holding ourselves with kindness or And this is why it's so important to develop those practices outside of the really difficult times, to really develop uh, our resources. It might be, again, it might be loving-kindness, to really practice with that, as it were, in the easier times, so that resource gets stronger, so that in the really hard times we can use that in a way which actually shifts the really difficult emotion and moves us into more of a sense of balance. Because the antidotes are really helping to bring us back to balance, and they're also strengthening positive qualities. So that's a really important resource to use at certain times, is to, to be able to know it's wise now to really go into an antidote. And you might remember the stories about loving-kindness, that loving-kindness was originally given by the Buddha as an antidote to fear. Do you remember that story? Have I told that recently? It's the story of Maybe I'll end with this, and, and I'll, I'll say a lot. I think next time I will say a lot more about the quality of antidotes and the quality of wisdom. That's what I'll focus on next time. Um, but the, I'll close with this. The Buddha had some monks and nuns, I think, who were going to live in a forest. And in the forest, this is according to that worldview, there were a bunch of tree spirits who, it being a forest, had a lot of power. And the tree spirits at first said, oh, it'd be great to have these monks and nuns here for a while. But they didn't realize that the monks and nuns were intending to stay for a long time. And so after a while I said, enough, you know, they're visitors, they're here, but, you know, we need, I'm putting words into the tree spirit's mind, but (laughs) we need our own space. (laughs) Probably tree spirits probably said those sort of things. And so... And so the tree spirits had the ability to manifest terrifying images and unbelievably stinky smells. <laughs> and so they did that, and basically the monks and nuns in no, in, in no time flat were freaked out and went back to the Buddha and said, you wouldn't believe those incredibly stinky smells and horrifying images. And the Buddha, probably with a certain degree of equanimity, said, I have something for you. And he taught them loving kindness. Uh, it's generally thought of as an antidote to fear, not necessarily to the smells and the images. <laughs> but the, um, and he gave them to it, and they went back. And in part, it was loving kindness towards oneself, but also loving kindness towards others. And we don't have all the details of what happened with the tree spirits, but, and again, this is a, a story, so it may have been slightly romanticized, but we don't know. Um, but it was that the uh, tree spirits uh, were so appreciative of loving-kindness and just felt so good that they, they, they probably tried to be terrifying for a while and it didn't work because the monks and nuns had this antidote, as it were, to fear that they could go to and they weren't afraid and after a while the tree spirit said, you're okay, you can stay as long as you want and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> so, but seriously, <laughs> uh, maybe just to sit for a moment, and then in a moment we can see if there are questions about working further with thoughts and emotions.
So please, any, any questions or reflections? Or, or just, it could be just to bring this to your own experience, how to work with it, because that's really what our intention is, to give these tools for our own experience um, you know, during the week. everybody's so quiet I'll, maybe they feel the same as I do and I, I don't know how much of this I can actually understand or apply mm-hmm. to me too um, I did have one experience mm-hmm. a few days ago of, of dealing with anger yeah. kind of a customary issue for me and I became angry at this person and then I became aware that this is how I was feeling and uh, eventually I, I realized I just couldn't Continue relating, relating to her if, if I was going to have this feeling and pursue the, the path that she was objecting to. So I decided to, you know, abandon it and, and, and you know, accept, accept her rejections. Now, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm stating that in kind of a vague way, but yeah. it was a way of dealing with the with, with the feeling I had and, and not allowing it to persist as a problem yeah. between us. But, uh, so it was, for me, that was a very big deal not to uh, to, 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 to go down that Yeah, yeah, and that, and that sounds skillful, and that really comes under the uh, framing of today, which is okay. We have we have mindfulness, and then we have uh, some other tools, and you can see that it actually could get quite complicated because primarily here we're just talking about uh, inner practice, our own <coughs> practice with our own states of mind and heart. And if we were to, uh, as it were, give a full treatment, we'd have to go into interpersonal ways of working with difficult emotions. It, get into the social dimensions. I mean, it's actually big. But, it, but so what we're primarily doing here this time is looking at how to work with it individually. And sometimes, I think, as you say, I mean, in a sense, you, get, you worked with the, uh, some with the tool of mindfulness, and then in a sense, and some with the deepening. And then, and, and then I think in some ways worked with the wisdom, which is to ask, is this really wise just to stay here? And you, in a sense, you... you chose to what's often valuable with anger, which is to take a time out or to, to shift the situation, which in a way is a kind of an antidote. So all of those, in a sense, came into play. So it's, 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 it's a good example, and I think, it probably, I think everyone probably can relate to that. Yeah, please. For a long time, yeah. Uh, you know, for a somewhat minor thing. And uh, at times it has set me, you know, really elicited rage yeah. almost in my mind. Yeah. And uh, the two avenues I could go toward is acceptance. You know, try to let it be and, you know, be okay with it, I guess. Not react. To, to your own rage or to the, uh, to, the, to, the other driver. to the other drivers, yeah. To rage. Yeah. And uh, I'm usually more proud of that after the fact. The other one is, you know, to maybe stop the car and instill fear in that driver. <laughs> Can everyone hear? Yeah. <laughs> you know, show, show them my anger and my disturbance. It, yeah. You, you didn't have to. You could have home. Don't be. You know, something like that. You didn't have to do five seconds. Right. And my thought process. And I'm usually not proud of myself. I'm less proud of myself after if I do that. <laughs> I am. Yeah. In a more accepting way. 
is my two thought processes. Okay, if I do the second one, that driver's less likely next time to do the five-second call. <laughs> then if I do the more, I don't know what you call it, the other accepting one. More meditative. <laughs> yeah. So there's a dichotomy in my mind. So really, really asking about that situation. and. Yeah, that's, that's a challenging one, um, <clears throat> and, and maybe it's helpful to, um, did everyone hear the example? Huh? Yeah. So the example of um, how to respond to someone beeping on the horn for five or ten seconds straight. So um, probably it's helpful to distinguish between how to respond in terms of your own mind, and then how to respond interpersonally, you know, to distinguish those two. Because for your own mind, it's really a question of how, it's really how to act wisely and come back to balance. And um, then within that balance, then it's a question of how to act skillfully. And so if you're feeling really pissed off, how to come back to balance? Well, maybe the acceptance could be part of a, more of a wisdom approach. It's saying, you know, could be this is happening. You know, we could maybe even reflect. Maybe this person just had really rough experience or whatever. Even bring in compassion. And um, antidote might be to just uh, turn down another street. <laughs> <laughs> and and if you had the capability, you might want to uh, be mindful. If you were balanced, to see just to just to be with your own rage, because it's interesting why. Does someone else honking lead to rage? I mean, it could lead in different directions. I mean, I'm generalizing a little bit because for other people's experience. So you could work with mindfulness and really explore it. You could work with um, uh, the wisdom dimension. Again, maybe we're thinking of these as these four basic areas of tools. Mindfulness, deepening, deepening of mindfulness through inquiry, then the wisdom, and then antidotes. And so you probably can reflect, and maybe I'll be brief here, but you probably can reflect on your own, how might I use each of those four? And it sounds like the acceptance has the wisdom dimension. You know, going to another street would have the antidote dimension, or you could also go to compassion for the person. You know, that person's probably in a pretty suffering state. So you could go to compassion, if that's possible. And in terms of whether the honking... And, and giving uh, fearful stares at the person, we don't know how that's going to affect the person, unfortunately. <laughs> if you knew for sure that this was going to reduce in less honking, result in less honking, maybe that would be skillful. I personally could imagine that the person, when the person's in, yeah, it could, I could imagine it having opposite effect also. And I could also, but the main thing is most likely when that person's in that state, that person is pretty much stuck in the rage. And there's probably not much of anything that's going to get through at all. So you'll have to sort that, the interpersonal, out. But I think it's especially important to see what's, what helps your state of mind. And, and maybe in giving that example, we've given a few other alternatives to reflect on, like the compassion especially, I think. Okay, this, this will have to be the last one because we're, we're at time. Uh, it was very helpful that you actually talked about mindfulness and then the other tools. Yeah. The one we talked about last week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the more kind of I tried kind of to be mindful about it, it just felt like it was getting worse. Yeah. Because the more I analyze it, it just puts me more and more back. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of was very interested here about the antidote. And I think we all probably react because we're probably like in medicine, like, wow, that's the problem, let's kill the drug. So, um, but first of all, what is kind of the antidote and when do you switch back? Because the antidote yeah. doesn't resolve it. It just helps you not to make it worse, right? It's, so it's a little more... It's a little more complex, actually. Um, and I think I'm going to give a lot more detail on that the next time I come. Because mm-hmm. we, we talked some after last time about this. And, and I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get to yours, I think, just, just briefly uh, afterwards. But it's actually pretty complex. The, um, partly because they're not, they're not totally separate. But let's, let's suppose that you know, the example I gave... And I'll just, I think I'll just take two or three minutes and then we'll finish. Are you okay with two or three minutes more or a few minutes over time? <clears throat> that, like waking up in the middle of the night uh, and having some issues, 
if I apply an antidote, that's wise in the moment. It doesn't at all particularly resolve the issues. Okay, and so that, that's true. Now, if, if I, um, and for something really deep, a deeper issue like you're working with, with regrets, okay, um, antidotes, uh, it's, it's actually more complex because in a way, under antidotes, I'm not simply meaning, not simply meaning something that shifts the energy and temporarily takes one out of a difficult state, but I'm also under that understanding ways to strengthen beautiful states. And sometimes, for example, if we're feel, being very critical of ourselves, and we strengthen loving-kindness towards ourselves in a really deep way, it actually can, and, and let's say the presenting issue is being judgmental of ourselves, okay? If I actually strengthen loving-kindness, which is a kind of antidote, and really get that a lot stronger, it's not just an antidote in terms of shifting, but it actually gets at some of the root issues that, that are there. So that's a very brief account that I want to expand on next time, but there, so maybe using the kind of medical language of antidotes may be misleading because by antidotes we're really talking about shifting the energy basically to something more positive and something that brings us to balance. But we can, in certain ways, we can do that. And I know, for example, in the field of psychotherapy, it's actually uh, an interesting issue sometimes whether we have to go continually into the old difficult stuff or whether sometimes we can actually, or at least I think we need to do that some, but we, there's also the issue of whether we can actually shift the energy to more the, the new or the emerging state, which can be quite stronger, and whether it's actually skillful to do that more of the time than to go into the hard stuff. That's an interesting issue in psychotherapy. And there's some really interesting research in terms of the, the nature of the brain, which suggests that it's actually, sometimes we can actually shift the patterns in a fairly uh, permanent way by going to, as it were, the, the new patterns that want to emerge rather than just hanging out with the old stuff. And I, I think I want to cover that in more detail next time because it's a really big issue and it really gets right to what you're talking about. So it's, you can see how it's a little more complex. Antidotes sometimes right in the moment, yes, they just shift the energy. But in the long run, if we, if we strengthen beautiful qualities and think of those as in a way as antidotes, if we strengthen the beautiful qualities more, that's who we become. You know, that's who we become. If we strengthen loving kindness and wisdom and compassion, and we use those as a way to shift the energy, we become those. I think we need to look at the hard stuff with mindfulness, but we don't have to do it exclusively because it's as we have more of the wisdom and loving kindness present, it transforms us. So the tape just ended. <laughs> Are you okay with holding it till, till next time or right afterwards? So thanks for your patience. Let's just sit for a minute. And thanks for your good question about the regrets. So just sitting with what may have been helpful in any ways that you'd like to bring this into your everyday life and practice in the next uh, week and two weeks. And we'll be returning in two weeks to continue. You might also just make a mental note or reflection of how in particular you might use these tools of mindfulness, deepening and inquiry, second, third, wisdom, and fourth, what we've called antidote or strengthening the beautiful qualities. Those four, think of how you might bring those into working with something that's up for you in your life. Knowing that we practice not just for ourselves, but for others. We offer what's been helpful from the day out beyond the walls, beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.